Uh, all right, so we are finishing a long series that we've been in on troubling images of God in the Old Testament. And we are tonight just going to touch on some remaining themes from the difficulties, especially with the wartime and violence passages regarding the Canaanites. We actually had a pretty good discussion last week. I'm not going to recap too much, but I want to highlight for some of the people who missed it what you missed, because I think it's going to be a good way to understand some of these passages. Uh, before I do that, let me remind you that there are a number of books that we read for this series, and I'm going to end tonight with an, a, you know, kind of an exhortation that you should read more because there's only so much I can do in a series on a Sunday night when there's so many books that we've been reading. So I want to also give credit where credit is due. And last week, a lot of the explanations I gave come from Paul Copen's book, uh, is God a Moral Monster? So if I could recommend one book, that would be the one I would recommend. Uh, if I could give it four and a half stars, if I could do half a star, I would give it four and a half because I think it's a very good book. Um, I've told you that the other books are good and I'm going to talk about one of them a little bit more tonight. But there's another book that I ended up bringing into this discussion uh, that I'll mention too, and that is God and Canaanite Genocide, Show Them No Mercy. This is a book that's written for seminary students and the best way to describe a book like this, it's like Exodus in a book. Because each of the four theologians takes turn explaining what they think the resolution is, and the other three respond in writing. Then the next one goes, and the other three respond in writing. So it's a very interactive book. If you want to look at a broad spectrum of beliefs, and if you can handle some of the higher, you know, they just assume everybody who's reading this is tracking with them at a seminary level, that is probably a pretty good book. Although I would still say that even after having read them, those are my two favorites, uh, Paul Copen's book is still pretty darn good. Uh, probably just a slight edge better. Last week, we had some things to think about. If you remember what we did last week is we focused on what is the problem with these passages in the Old Testament. And if I could put it in a nutshell, we see God telling Israel to go to war against nations and to leave no one alive. No one to kill children and infants, to kill women, to kill every man, to destroy cattle in some cases, in other cases they could keep certain things, to basically annihilate the enemy and to show no mercy. And that always brings us to a place where we're troubled when we see God in that place. I just put up on the screen just a couple of the verses, just these are snippets of those verses that we saw from last week, that no Anakites were left in the Israelite territory, or... In Joshua 11, he says he totally destroyed all who breathed. Or Saul totally destroyed the Amalekites that we saw last week. That's where we were. Here were, in quick summary, the points that I made last week for those who are just joining us. First of all, the idea of a war narrative in the Old Testament is kind of a specific genre. People in the Near East wrote these war narratives and they frequently use exaggerated terminology. And as we saw last week, this brings us kind of the second point, that despite the historical facts, when people said that Joshua killed all who breathed, we saw that even the text itself reveals that that's actually not true because there were still people living. And even Joshua at the end of his life realizes there's still lots of unconquered people, even though earlier it said he had conquered everyone. So one thing you have to deal with, no matter what you think, is the text makes it clear that no matter what was said, that's not actually what happened. And that helped us resolve a little bit of our feelings about this last week. 
a good example, just quickly, was we looked at later how Saul totally destroyed the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 8 until David comes along in 1 Samuel 28 and then kills every Amalekite again. And then just two chapters later, he's back at war with them. So clearly something is happening in the text where people are using language, but it doesn't comport with the actual facts. It means that maybe we read it and we think, we shrink back in horror at it. But if you keep reading, you realize that that's probably not exactly what's happening. In fact, we see the Amalekites 250 years later are still around. They keep reappearing. So these are the people that you cannot kill, apparently, in the scriptures. And that is true of all the Canaanites, by the way. We see that they're repeated. Something else we said last week. We have to be very careful when we use these terms like ethnic cleansing and genocide. They're really constructs that we have kind of defined in our own time. But the most important point about this is when we use this term loosely, it seems like we're saying Israel just decided it didn't like its neighbors. It was racist against its neighbors, so it decided to annihilate them. And we miss that it's really God is the one who's saying to Israel, you do this. And you do it for my purpose, and you do it for me alone, because when I'm not with you, you're going to lose. You can't do it anytime you want to. You only do it when I command you to do it. And so it seems strange to fit the words like ethnic cleansing and genocide on God, who probably doesn't have any kind of them and us beliefs, <laughs> since he's the creator of all and the ruler of all. I don't know that those words even fit what we're trying to say, but they're emotionally charged words. We love to use them because, wow, they just defeat the argument just by bringing them up. That we said last week we should be careful of, right? Uh, I've actually taken classes on exactly these words in my law classes on human rights law and war crimes law, and it's more complicated. It's a very good argument that some theologians make when they say, not applicable, and I actually agree. Having studied this, I agree that it's too easy just to use these words. And incidentally, I saw that in the book that I described about uh, the Show Them No Mercy book, they used the term so flippantly that I thought, you know, slow down. I don't even think you guys are using it right. Another point we made last week, there's archaeological evidence that these cities that were being attacked were not civilian cities. They're actually fortified military strongholds. Uh, that's the evidence about Jericho. That's the evidence about the city of Ai. It seems that there isn't people there. There might be civilians there, but that was not the main purpose of the town. So again, maybe in our minds we think they're just attacking and killing everybody there, but there might not have been the normal civilian population. Why? Because they didn't live in cities. They lived in the countryside, the cities where, where the military, the priests, and the king usually lived to protect the countryside. And finally, we asked if it made us feel any better knowing that the Canaanites were aware of what God was doing, had time to repent. We saw the verses last week that, where people knew in advance what God was doing. Uh, they repeated that they had understood what God's plan was, how he brought the people miraculously out of Egypt. They knew that God was behind these people. So that gave them some time to maybe reconsider. And some would argue, and I would say some, because not all, argue that if you read the text, you might find that people were given a chance to make peace in some cases. That's just a summary of some of the things that last week we were supposed to think. Maybe that at least brings the temperature down a little bit, makes us feel a little bit more aware, because most of us don't know any of these points at face value. We just read the words. We shrink back in horror and we think, I can't understand this. So our task has been, let's try to understand it a little bit better. Let's see if it's possible to understand it just a tiny bit more and at least know what it is we're troubled by. There were two points made from last week that I said I would answer this week. So let's look at those. 
Chris last week asked this question that you see on the screen. Okay, if it's true, if we accept the notion that there's some sort of exaggeration in this wartime narrative, doesn't it create a problem for us in scripture? If it's true that we say that when the people wrote these texts and said, we're annihilating everybody, we're exterminating everybody, all who breathe will be put to death. And we just say, well, that was probably an exaggeration because the text is clear that they didn't kill everybody. The question was, so does that create a problem for us that we're saying that part of the Old Testament was just a big boast? Yes. Um, in terms of exaggeration, I think it's widely theologically accepted already that Jesus spoke in hyperbole and exaggeration, like when he says it is better to cut off the offending body part that's sinning. Like, I think it's pretty widely accepted that Jesus doesn't actually mean go cut off your hand, he's speaking in hyperbole. So I don't think that a lot of people have problems with that. Like, in terms of deciding what other parts of scripture are exaggerated, I think that's where it calls in our responsibility to read the scripture as literature. I mean, as an English person, it's really easy for me to be able to pick out different genres and see, okay, this is clearly poetry, this is clearly historical, this is clearly wisdom writing. And you have to discern where the type of literature is impacting what's being said and not lose the wisdom in what's being said in worrying about the genre too much. Okay, let me pick up right from there and press forward and here's some more comments from you. This point about genre is very important. It's clear that the people who wrote the Old Testament narratives of war exaggerated and used hyperbole. By the way, so did other people in the Near East. This is not just the Israelite scriptures. I've actually seen some of the scriptures that were written by people like in Moab who worshiped the god Chumash, and they would actually say the same kinds of things, like we killed everybody, we annihilated everybody in Israel, which of course we know didn't happen because we still have them around. So that is the same thing. Everyone in the Near East used this language. The question though is, does it affect the reliability of our scriptures? And I think the answer you're pressing for is, we need to understand genre when we read scripture. Pieces of scripture are written in different genres. And let me explain, for example, look at 2 Kings 18.5. This is what it says in scripture about King Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. There's been no one like him ever, right? Before him or after him. Now, you might just think right there, uh, wait a minute, uh, wasn't there some other good kings or something like that? I mean, how could Hezekiah be described this way? That's got to contradict other things I know about Scripture. But here's what's even more interesting. Hezekiah, this verse about Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18, we have this in 2 Kings 23, just a few chapters later. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did. So at this point, you'd have to say, you know, either the, the writer of 2 Kings is just lavishly adding praise without thinking, or this is part of the genre of how people speak. All right? So that is okay, I want to just point out, because this at least says, hey, God used people in the genre in which they wrote. In fact, I want to make this point right here. The scriptures had human authors. They wrote in the language that they were comfortable with, in the literary forms that they used. They didn't just suddenly start writing scripture like it was one genre by itself when they were writing. If they were writing poetry, if they were using hyperbole, if they were using an analogy, if they were writing wisdom literature, and if they're writing a wartime narrative, you have to understand what were they writing in. So the scriptures written by human authors 
But on top of that, it's superintended by God. And I'm going to leave it there to create what we believe is a doctrine of inspiration. We spent 11 weeks on this series, and I'm not going to rehash it, except to point you to the fact that in that series, we said, every time you start to struggle with how you could have full human authorship and yet be fully the word of God, we have to kind of remember that we have this in Christianity repeatedly, like the incarnation. Fully God and fully man is Jesus Christ. And yet, we don't understand how that works. Our mind tries to make analogies that fit, and it's very difficult. And this is no different when we deal with Scripture. Again, I'm not here to talk about inspiration or infallibility or the authority of Scripture. We've done that at length. But what I do want to repeat is, it's not a problem for Scripture to at least look and say, oh, I see that they're using this particular type of writing. God used the author in whatever form they would have been writing, and that's what we received. So that's one question. The other that came out of it, though, was, okay, and this one Andrew asked, even if human authors were exaggerating, when God's voice is recorded as saying, do this or do that, is his voice exaggerated too? I mean, God is the one commanding these people to kill everyone. Are you saying that God also spoke in exaggerated wartime narratives? I mean, why is God bound by that genre? And I guess I would point out, this goes back to what Ray was saying. I don't think that God is beyond using things that people understand. And if they understand hyperbole, he uses it. Here's some examples. In Ezekiel 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Well, if you start thinking like, what would that be? That would be worse than the flood, for example, uh, or worse than what's going to come in the future, like in the tribulation. Because he's talking about what he's going to do to Israel and Judah at the time. All right. Or Jesus then says later, using hyperbole, he says, from then there will be great distress. He's talking about the tribulation at the end. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. And never to be equaled again. Some people, by the way, don't even believe he's talking about the tribulation. He's talking about the destruction of the temple in that period of time. So it seems that God is comfortable speaking in emphasis and terms we could understand. And if you want a simple, non-controversial one, the one that Ray cited is the best one. Where Jesus in his plain teaching says... If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Or how about if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Anybody in here ever sinned with their hand or their eye? But none of us would ever actually do that because either one, we're disobedient, <laughs> or two, we understand it properly. He's making a very strong point. The truth is still very real here. But he's really trying to emphasize the point and drive it home. So I would submit, I don't think God is beyond even addressing people in the hyperbole that they would understand, coming down into our language to reach us. Right. And that's why part of me has always struggled with maintaining the balance of remembering that, yes, Scripture is holy and inspired by God, but it is not part of the Trinity. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Bible is a separate thing. It's not like the whole idea of the Bible, like elevating the Bible to the status of an idol and making it more, attributing it more holiness than it actually has. Like not that it's not holy, and that's why there's a balance. Like you have to have a particular reverence for it, but at the same time you have to remember that it itself is not God. 
it's not God. It's God's word, but it is not him itself. And I'm not going to argue the point because we've spent so many weeks on it, but I will point out that we did talk about what's called bibliolatry, where you take the Bible to idolatrous uh, position. And actually, I'm going to borrow your point and come back to it a little bit later when we talk about ways to understand what we've been studying. All right, those are the two points we left off with that I just wanted to say I would give an answer, uh, but we were kind of uh, going along last week. I want to make sure we at least came back to them. I said at the beginning of this series that I was hoping this was going to do more than just try to resolve the issues of trouble for us when we read Old Testament passages we don't understand. I wanted it to also begin to inform our view of who God is in a way that maybe we just don't on a daily basis. So I'm going to kind of wrap it up with some verses that I think demonstrate where we come out of this. So here's something I found interesting. One of the theologians I was reading is Professor Cowles, C.S. Cowles. And he made this statement that really struck me. I think it's true. I just like the way he stated it. He says, if you want to know what the God of the Old Testament is like, the revelation, the amazing revelation of the new covenant is that God is like Christ. Think about that for a moment. He says, Jesus is not defined by God. Rather, God is defined by Jesus. Now, that may sound really heavy and theological to you for a moment, but let me tell you why I picked on this. One of the problems we had when we started this series is many of us read the New Testament. We see what Jesus is like. We go back and look at the Old Testament and we think there's a disconnect. I, do, I see some sort of dissimilarity between what I see here and there. And so he's struggling with that and saying, okay, but we have to pick. What is God like? And his view, and I think it's probably right, that we have to begin our theology with understanding what we have seen and heard and what Jesus himself says he's like. Just look at some of the descriptions that Paul gives. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God is like, what he looks like, what he's about? Listen to what Colossians says. Colossians 1.15 says, this is him. In Colossians 2.9, it says, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form in Christ Jesus. Or you could take the words of John, where he records Jesus himself having this dialogue with his own disciples, and Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus responds, don't you know me, Philip? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So here's what this comes down to for some people. The question is, if that is what God is like, is that a complete picture? Yes. Um, I just, I don't like that it's so simplified to say, you know, that Jesus is not defined by God, but rather God is defined by Jesus. And I would argue that the disconnect is in taking out this one story from the Old Testament taking out this one thing Jesus said from the New Testament and comparing them. Because going through the Old Testament myself, and I said this before, I was blown away of how much I saw Christ in the Old Testament, things that he said, things, themes that God brings up in the New Testament about treating people and, and like serving the poor and like all these ideas that you think are so brand new from Jesus, but they're so consistent. And if you go back to the Old Testament and really spend time there, like spend time there as, 
I don't know, a moment of obedience where you don't want to go through genealogies, but just do it. Like you will see throughout these stories this thread that just connects the whole Bible together. And so I feel like this is just so oversimplified. I feel like it's easy for people to say, well, forget what the Old Testament says. Like, we'll just take everything that we have memorized that Jesus said and say, that's God. But the whole picture is the whole picture of God, the whole Bible, like everything. Okay. I don't disagree with that. Anyone else want to jump in on that? Because even Cowles would say that though our theology, our belief about God has to begin with Christ as the center. So we begin by seeing who is Christ. He's revealed himself to us in Christ. These verses kind of make it clear that that's the intention. And then we try to understand everything else in light of Christ, in light of the cross, in light of resurrection. That becomes like the central focal point. Most people would agree with that. But here's where the next step is, just to show you. Because Cal's is having the same struggle that most people have. I see who Christ is. And I like Christ. I worship Christ. I follow Christ. I just don't see that the God of the Old Testament is anything like him. So, and there's a dot, dot, dot. And this is where he goes one way, and other people will go the other. Yes? You think that the God of the Old Testament is nothing like Jesus? You're not reading it carefully enough. You're not understanding the laws. Like, you really need to dig into... Leviticus and Deuteronomy and look for the laws that continually time and time again say take care of the orphan, take care of the widow, make sure the foreigner is fed. These very specific laws for every seven years, things that you have to do to provide for people, like all of those things are there and when you do, like I think it's important to isolate these these stories of war and genocide within the Old Testament, but if that's all you're reading and you're not really digging into the law and really digging into the prophets, then you are going to miss that Jesus is in the Old Testament. Okay, can I critique both of you, though? Because I think you guys are going halfway, but not all the way. Here's where I think you're going halfway. Sometimes our tendency when we say that Jesus is like God in the Old Testament, what we end up doing, I'm not saying he's not. I'm saying what we end up defending, though, is we say Jesus is nice and loves the poor and is merciful and he's cool. And so I see passages in the Old Testament where God is the same. Right? And we go, you see, they're the same. But what I want you to do is think, is it possible that Jesus is also a warrior God who is also consistent with the warrior God of the Old Testament? Is that possible? Morgan. Well, you have to also understand that God, even though the character can be the same, he seems to relate to, to individuals or, or circumstances differently only because... God chose to take bodily form, right? I mean, God came at a time and, and limited God's self in the person, right? And so it's not surprising that you see lots of statements in the Old Testament about God dealing with nations. Jesus also talks about dealing with nations, but there seems to be a different thing because God came in the flesh. You know, I mean, like we're also struggling with just simply saying God's character may not change, but how he chooses to interact with humans may, may change from time to time. Like, I don't, I don't see any contradiction there, but sometimes we think there is one. Okay, two more comments I'm going to press forward, Monique. Um, and also to keep in mind that Jesus came here with a purpose and a mission. And that purpose wasn't necessarily to like, do the same things that were happening in the Old Testament. It was to say what he had to say and sacrifice himself. And we roughly believe that that was like about 30 years that he had to kind of grow up and, and accomplish what he had to accomplish, 33. No, no, three. I mean, we know three years of Jesus' well, ministry. But that's one thing that he had a purpose. 
Second, he definitely demonstrated a holy anger when he turned over tables, even on the way he spoke to the Pharisees. I mean, you could tell that he had an authority where he didn't fear that, and he holy is holy, and this is wrong, and there were times where he was moved to do something, but again, he had his purpose, that was his purpose. And my point three that I want to kind of reiterate and bring back is, yes, people died for sin in the Old Testament, but remember that God applied the same measure to himself having done nothing wrong. So he submitted to his own law, so to speak, that the wages of sin is death, I'm taking the sin of these people, so I myself am dying for everyone. So it is like really beautifully, I don't wanna use the word fair, but I'm just gonna use the word fair, I know that's not maybe the right word, but it's kind of equal, it's in a way justified. Let me give you a little bit more info and then we'll hear back from you again. One view, Cowell's view, would be this. And I respect him, um, but I just think he's wrong. I mean, but he's, he's a very well-written theologian scholar, and he is a true believer. He says, clearly the Old Testament writers got it wrong. That's his view. And we're only writing from their own theological perspective. They just thought God told them this, or that God must be behind this, or God would support us if we did these things. That's just the way everybody wrote at the time. Everybody thought God was responsible for good, evil, whatever you want to do. They just didn't get it right. Since God is like Christ, and Christ is nothing like the God of the Canaanite war narratives, that would be his view, it's easier to yield our view of Scripture than to pervert our view of God. You know, I kind of agree with that last point on just one basis. If we knew for sure that he was right about his assumption, I would rather yield my view of Scripture than pervert my view of God. And I think most of us would agree. I just don't think he's right about his assumption when he says Christ is nothing like the God of the Canaanite war narratives, especially after we spend so much time understanding that much of what we see at face value is not as troubling as it seems. I'm not saying there's no trouble. Just saying that when you read it at face value, you just go, whoa, until you start to peel back layer after layer to better understand it, right? Maybe if nothing else, just to say that when he says, I annihilate all the people and they're still there in the next story, that something is going on that might make us feel just a little bit more comfortable and understand that better. That's one view. If you like this view or you want to explore it, I want to tell you, go read these two books. Disturbingly Divine Behavior is Eric Siebert's book that I said, was very good, but I don't agree with, but I want you to, I mean, I read it, you should maybe investigate it. Because his view is, I can't reconcile this, so they, we know that they exaggerated in the scriptures, that was the genre, they probably just never got it right at all. I think that lets you off the hook too easily from dealing with difficult passages. You just go, whoop, they were wrong. And that would be the end of it. We'd have a half an hour series. Also, you can read from Cowles in that book, Show Them No Mercy, because I think he does a very good job of articulating the position. Here's the other position. You can tell kind of maybe that I support this one a little bit more. I don't think we can artificially limit our view of Jesus to the Gospels. I even see that happening already. Like when you started talking about citing anger passages where like he flipped over the tables. How is flipping over the tables like sacrificing infants or killing infants? It's not. So we're always like confined by the Gospels, like, and I will point out why I said three years, not 33 years or 30, is because, you know, other than the fact that he's born, which he's too young to do anything, we have the one story at the temple. The only other thing we have is the three years of his ministry. And I think it's a little strange to see all of God consumed into a three-year narrative, right, and say that if he didn't do it in those three years, that's not consistent with God. 
uh, especially when we have, as you pointed out, other images of God. And I would also add other images specifically of Christ that are not in the Gospels. We have Paul's writings. We have the other apostles writing their theological views on what Christ is and what he is not. And we have the eschatology of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which we need to look at. Ray. Here's just, I don't know if I'm going to articulate this riddle because I'm still trying to figure it out in my head. But if Jesus is at the very center of everything, it seems like there's a lot of stories in the Old Testament that go very far to illustrate the preservation of the Israelite nation because the Messiah was going to come out of that. There's Esther, there's David and Goliath. It seems to me, and maybe this isn't true for all of the war narratives, I haven't read them very in depth, but I'm wondering if those war narratives are there like maybe to further illustrate the importance of the point of like Israel had to be preserved. That nation had to be preserved in order for Jesus to come in order to save all nations. So is Jesus a warrior God? That is one of the stated reasons that God gives as to why the war is justified. Not only are the Canaanites evil, but also because he wants to protect the nation from the influence of the gods around them. To be clear, so that we're not just glossing over things, one of the problems with that view is it seems like they were still tempted and fell into idolatry, not only after they committed all these wars against the nations, they did that even on the way, right? They couldn't even hang out while Moses was getting the Ten Commandments. They, they, they were constantly falling into idolatry. And the most ardent critics of God would say, you picked the weakest people around, or what were you so worried about? That you as a god were so weak that you were not attractive compared to all the other gods that you had to constantly punish these people to come back to you because at the slightest drop of a hat, they'd be running off and worshiping a pagan god? You know, there's responses to that like, look, you were trying to take a people who are used to a polytheistic world and bringing them into the worship of the one true god. But still what I'm saying is there's some issues there, right? But that is his, one of his strongest stated reasons. And I think we can understand it. I just want to say that Israel was wicked enough that it didn't even work when they did that. Chris, a moment ago, was talking about the word sacrifice. And I would actually change that word around to God was exercising his judgment and his justice and his right to do with people as he can. But this is not a, an Old Testament concept alone. Look, when we get to Revelation, what it says. And I want you to think about this passage, not in terms of, can I interpret Revelation? This part is really not like there's a lot to interpret. I want you to think about it in light of, does this God, does this Christ, sound anything like a warrior God? I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What I think Cowles misses is that if you focus on Jesus as found in his three-year gospel ministry, 
you are searching for examples of him being that type of God, but nothing requires us to limit our inquiry there. We can see Jesus in this way. Let me skip to this, for example. We also have to remember that God's justice means something. And it's not just directed at other people. So when we see that maybe even his warfare using the Israelites is his judgment on other people, could it also be that he judges his own people that way? Of course he does. We see that the northern tribes in Israel, the ten tribes, are removed entirely from the land. Why? Because they continued to rebel. What did he do? He raised up an army of foreign aggressors. And they understood it completely. They knew what was coming. Their later theological reflections, like in the Chronicles, they understand exactly what happened. Why it was that they were carried off, never to return, with only a remnant remaining. The southern kingdom, same thing. They actually were allowed a little bit longer to rebel against the Lord. And then, even after seeing what he had done to the northern ten tribes, they were carried off also into captivity. From that point forward, Israel basically never gets the right to self-rule ever again until the 20th century when the promises begin to be fulfilled that he will restore them to the land. Again, I cite Daniel 7 through 12, the, the part that really contains a lot of the eschatology in Daniel and Revelation itself with images of Jesus bringing that kind of warfare. Read Daniel chapter 7 especially with Jesus cites at his own trial by the way, because we have this unbelievable image that I'm, I don't even know how the Old Testament people understood it. That there is God sitting on the throne and then God coming in the clouds. Which if you didn't have a Trinitarian view, it would have probably just like, I don't understand what's going on. God is showing up twice in the same vision. And of course, Jesus cites it at his trial to say, I am that one. Which was enough to get him crucified. So we see God in a way when he says coming on the clouds of heaven with the angels. We see him coming to judge as a warrior God. I want to be careful to also point out that it might help us understand that a lot of this was judgment on people. I know it's going to lead us to some questions which I'm going to address in just a second. Like why them? But if you just give me one more second. Here's another example of judgment in Revelation 20. That first one was Revelation 19. Here's another one. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We've dealt with this verse a number of times in our discussions, but one thing to point out here is, if we think it's bad to be killed in the battlefield, sometimes when we're stressed out about the Old Testament narratives, we need to put them in perspective of a God who will judge everyone at the end. So... I'm not trying to pretend like this is going to make everybody feel so good that we've resolved it. But I do want to point out that our view of God has to grow. Our view of Jesus has to grow. Our view of Jesus should grow even outside of the Gospels. I like that some of you see his pattern in the Old Testament. You see him there. 
many people believe, because John chapter 12 says this, that in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has a vision of the Lord sitting on the throne and realizes that he's going to be annihilated because he's a sinful person who has seen the Lord, that the person he's actually seeing on the throne is Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. I think there's a lot of places in the Old Testament that we might miss Jesus in such holiness. And I would just say to you, if nothing else, if I can't resolve all the trouble because I can't, I would just hope that your view of God would just expand. Not diminish, but grow into a God that we scarcely can contain in our mind. So here's the last slide I'll give you tonight just in helping us kind of maybe put some meaning to this. Tremper Longman kind of summarizes one of his colleagues by the name of Meredith Klein. This is kind of his summary. I think he paraphrases some work they did together. Here's what it says. It's only because God's extraordinary grace that Adam and Eve were not killed on the spot when they ate the fruit of the tree. Indeed, it is because of that grace that any of us breathe. The period of God's extraordinary grace, often called common grace, is a special circumstance. In this light, we should not be amazed that God ordered the death of the Canaanites, but rather we should stand in amazement that he lets anyone live. In a sense, the destruction of the Canaanites is a preview of the final judgment. Of course, we're left with disturbing questions. Why the Canaanites? Why not some other people? Are the Canaanites really extraordinarily evil? Are we going to base it all, by the way, on just saying, oh, they were evil? And he would say, no. Here, like in the book of Job, we are left unanswered with why suffering comes to one and not the other. A number of weeks ago, we struggled with the concept of fairness. And I said, you know, be careful of what you ask for in fairness. Fairness is that we all just be done with. We're done. We all deserve death. And fairness might be that God bring it all at once, immediately now to everybody. And he clearly doesn't do that. Even when we looked at harsh treatment of the law, why is that poor soul who's picking wood on the Sabbath, why is he the one that gets struck down when we know that Israel repeatedly broke the Sabbath and there wasn't any other reported incidences like that? Well, that's exactly how we should be thankful that he doesn't do that. He clearly can. He clearly commanded that he would. And the fact that he did it to show how serious he was would probably give us just an, an amazing view of his grace and mercy that he doesn't do it anytime we screw up. Now, I know none of us would be comfortable with that God. Uh, but by the way, that God, I don't think, actually exists. And the fact that we're here proves that we have that kind of God who's merciful and true. Anyone want to jump in and give me your final comments on this? Yes. I would just say I actually really liked listening to the pastors out of Revelation because I think because Jesus is so accessible and so emotionally friendly to us that sometimes we're tempted to forget what holiness means and Jesus being part of that holiness to expand our view of God to remember that he's not just the shepherd who we love so much, who seeks us when we walk away, but he is also this expansive and holy being that makes people terrified 
like angels always have to say, fear not, because people think they're going to die when they witness something that's even close to holy. So like remembering that there is that terror and that awe and that reverence and that sense that you're feeling like you're going to die in the presence of God and Jesus, like that's a part of what we believe. We can tend to trivialize that, especially when it comes to Jesus. So I actually like reading that, like, Jesus deserves that same kind of reverence and terror, holy terror times. Can I commend you a book of the Bible that would help us understand the fear of God in a good way, in a healthy New Testament way? Most of us don't read the book of Hebrews. If you read the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews takes God's holiness to such extremes that books have been written about whether he's using hyperbole or not. And there's all sorts of debates where four theologians debate what it means to say, you know, violating the holiness of God will actually cost you perhaps the very sacrifice that saves you. But just for all of you who don't want to read one of those long, long books, the book of Hebrews in most of your Bibles is like five or six pages, maybe a few more. Uh, you might want to just use that to remind yourself of the amazing connections of Jesus, not only to the Old Testament, which the writer spends time on, but even more importantly, understanding God in this context of holiness. And I just did not want to bring in this passage, but that's another way to look at it. Dan. Um, okay, well, I just, well, I, I do agree with what you kind of ended with, what's on the slide here about, um, about God's grace kind of making all this a lot less traveling. I'm just still wondering, is there a difference between physically harming someone and spiritual warfare? Because it seems like in every um, instance of Jesus, he would always heal. Like, I understand that a physical death might, you know, that's not even as that spiritual death. But still, it just seems so different. And I don't think talk about Jesus. But Jesus' mission on earth was a specific thing to, for a specific period of time, right? So I agree, it seems at odds that he didn't come to bring warfare and judge people in that way. And that is where the problem emanates from because he had the opportunity. People wanted him to be that way. Right? People expected him to be that way. And that's kind of actually what I'm talking about next week, is the expectation that when they want him to do that, he declined it. So why then do we still say that he is like the God of the Old Testament? Because he seems to have made a break when he had the opportunity to free the people or to be a, a physical Messiah instead of one that brings spiritual consequence. I will say that we get freaked out by God killing people a little too much. I know it's gonna, probably send a spinning off thing, and I'm not going to allow us to do that. But we just get a little freaked out by God bringing justice earlier to some than to others. Yes, I don't know how that's fair. I don't understand that in my mind. But I still believe in a God who has made everything and can do what he wants because I don't believe death, as Heather has pointed out, is the worst thing. Right? I mean, death is not the worst thing. That's where a lot of this problem comes from. Like, we want a God who's never going to lift his finger against anybody, who's never going to enforce his own law, who's just going to love and hug everybody. And that is not a God, let alone our God. Joseph. I think, you know, we talked about fairness a few times, and I think we understand that. But I think the real issue is not necessarily fairness with judgment. It's equality and our notion of equality. And I think fairness really has been the wrong word all along. And equality is what kind of set us off and upset people, even when we're talking about slaves and women from before. And I don't necessarily know the answer to that, but I think that's the real issue more so than fairness. Let me close it off there. Let me point out that Tremper Longman even asked this question. Like, why the Canaanites? What made them so evil? We haven't resolved that. And I don't think we can. 
Because our human understanding is never going to be like, why those? Now, of course, God gives a reason. I don't want your idolatry to pollute my people. You guys were evil, but his own people were evil, right? His own people turned to idolatry. So there is a part that's just going to be like, it's not supplied. We should be careful. If we want fairness, then we should get the same faith they got, not the other way around. We have to be careful of what we ask for. So here's the final disclaimer. <laughs> there really are words there, and you really can't read them if you want. Here's the final disclaimer. You know what? I never pretended that if we did this long enough that I was going to resolve the issues to the satisfaction of any skeptic. What I hope we've done is to show you, first, that things are not always what they appear at face value, especially our lazy reading of the scriptures. Because we're just reading, we see something we don't like, that's the last time we read it. Things are not as bad as they appear at face value. Second, we had to pick a few things to talk about because there's so many issues. What I was hoping to do also was to model for you. Look how we took this one issue. I didn't pick easy ones. I tried to pick really hard ones. This is how people debate and talk about it. You could read some things about it too and see what you think. I'm just trying to model it. And third, we're never going to resolve these issues, not in eight weeks, not in 80 weeks, because people have been discussing them and wrestling with them. But there are very good people speaking on all sides. And even people that I disagree with, I see genuine belief in the personhood of who Christ is and who God is that are struggling to put it together. And I respect that, and it will continue. Long after this series is over, these people will keep writing about it. Maybe we just won't hear about it. Just one little example. Even as I was trying to think, okay, we kind of could wrap it all up. I was thinking about Achan. You guys remember who Achan is? He's the guy that hid the booty from Jericho under the tent. And when they went to attack the city of Ai, they got routed by the enemy. And Joshua says, Lord, how is it that we got routed? You're supposed to be with us. And he said, somebody withheld some of the, the stuff that you took. They find out it's Achan. Achan confesses. What happens to Achan? They stone him and his whole family. And there's a part of me that just felt like this pang inside, like the whole family dies because Achan broke the law. Yeah, and what troubled me even more is in Exodus it says that I will not punish the father for the sins of the children, and I will not punish the children for the sins of the father. Each is responsible for their own sin. So you could see that I'm not trying to sugarcoat any of this. I'm just saying that I read that in passing and I just went, and now my job as a thinking, believing like person who wants to love God with all my mind, soul, strength, is I need to look into that and say, what are people saying about that? Because I could just do what most of us do, go, that's crazy. Or I need to go back to these books a little bit more and go, yeah, how do people deal with that? This was meant to demonstrate to us that we should be doing these things, and more importantly, to grow our view of God. If you see Jesus now a little differently, as the Jesus not just of the Gospels, but the Jesus also of the eschaton, the Jesus of the Old Testament, then I think we have a better view of just who God is because we see him in the image of Christ. Let's pray and close up.
Thank you, Lord, for allowing us just to discuss these things in your presence. We take you for granted, and we take your grace for granted. If we were to confess to you openly right now, we do not have enough fear for you, Lord. Frankly, we don't have enough love for you either. Sometimes our relationship with you, Lord, is one of convenience because we prefer the outcome that you offer as opposed to an alternative or because we need you in the moment. And that's because we're broken people, Lord. We're living under the curse of sin that you promise that you will lift. You promise that our whole relationship with you will be restored. It will be reconciled. We will be so much closer with you and that the curse of the sin will be lifted so that we can actually love you as we were first intended. Thank you that you continue to love us despite our rebellion. Thank you that you continue to allow us to breathe despite our sin. We pray this in your name. Amen.